So when we lived in Washington, about nine months, eight to nine months out of the year, we had a fire going. We had a wood-burning stove in our home, and uh, that was our primary source of heat. And I had that bad boy blazing all the time. I, I would go find wood, and one of my passions is splitting wood. I love it. Uh, you know, if you ever have wood to split, let me know. Whenever you call me, I'll be there with my splitter. Um, and so there was a family in the church. They cut down like 11 trees. They cut them in rounds. I took my, I had a Ford truck at the time. I made like four trips to their house, loaded the back of my truck with rounds, split them, stacked them. And so again, always making fires. But what do you need to make a fire? You just throw the logs in there and light it. You need a what? You need a fire starter. And what I would do oftentimes is I would keep the, because uh, everyone uses toilet paper, but the empty rolls. And then you get lint from the lint trap and you stuff it in those little uh, rolls, that's a great fire starter. Anybody do that before? It works, doesn't it? Yeah, so we did that a lot. Um, the reason I share that, I want us to think about the Psalms as prayer starters. What does a fire starter do? It gets the fire started, <laughs> right? It gets it going. And so the Psalms function really as a prayer starter. And when I've discipled new believers in the past, one of the things, right, if you're, if you're talking to a new Christian, uh, oftentimes we'll say, so what do I do now, Chris, as a new believer? Well, you, you need to start reading the Bible and hearing from God, and you need to start praying, which is talking to God. And the follow-up question is, well, how do I do that? How do I pray? I'll take them to Matthew 6. We'll unpack the Lord's Prayer, but then I will direct them to the, the Psalms, because the Psalms teach us how to pray. They function as a prayer starter, all right? So just a fun way to think about the Psalms. Um, my text, our text is Psalm 32, which I'll read uh, in its entirety here shortly. The title of my sermon, Blessed Are the Forgiven. There is no greater blessing than being forgiven in Christ. Amen? Friends, I, I think we take this for granted. Life may be hard right now. Your, your marriage may be on the rocks. You may be jobless, but you may have shot a deer and you didn't recover it personal experience, right? But if you're forgiven, oh, everything else pales, amen? If you stand right before a holy God because of your trust in Christ and you know that you're forgiven, you are truly what? You're truly blessed. Blessed are the forgiven. The big idea, those who confess are truly blessed and from God's wrath find rest. I'm a poet. I didn't even know it. When I was in high school at Hudson, uh, I injured my knee, and I, I played soccer. Um, I, I really thought I, I might play at a big school. Uh, I played at a small school in college, but I got hurt pretty bad in high school. I hurt my knee really bad, and I, I tried to play through it. You know, I was one of those kids, I'll just rub some dirt on it. It just didn't get better, and it was nagging me. And, and I mean, I, I kept trying to practice, and I just, I, I mean, I was probably 50%, and my coach was like, Chris, you got to get this checked out. You're just not the same player. I don't want you to injure it worse. Well, I had some pretty major tears, which required what? Surgery. And when I finally had the surgery, there was relief, right? There was relief. The, the nagging pain, the discomfort, the inability to really play at my level. And I, I probably wasn't ever the same, but, you know, the Lord called me to be a pastor. So praise God for that. But having that surgery, doing something about it, it changed everything. That's the purpose of confession and repentance, right? For Christians. 
if, if we just wallow in our sin, if we just continue in our sin, if you're truly a believer, it should bother you. It should nag at your heart. And what does God call us to do? To confess it and to turn from it. And what we're going to see in our text, this confession and repentance will inevitably lead to true and lasting joy and peace. So let's read our passage. I hope you're familiar with Psalm 32. If not, uh, you're about to be in a few seconds. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Psalm 32. David begins, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, at this point he's saying, when I didn't confess, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand, he's talking about the Lord here, was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer, Selah, I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And what? What's the effect? And you forgave the iniquity of my sin, Selah. Therefore, here's the conclusion. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time When you may be found, surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance, Selah. And here's the transition in the psalm, because now the Lord speaks. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Now, I'm going to clarify something I just said. The transition in verse 8, where God speaks. God was speaking as David wrote this. I wasn't trying to say God wasn't speaking before, but here God directly speaks. Does that make sense? David was confessing, David was speaking, and then in verse 8, God speaks. But we know that all Scripture is God-breathed. I'm not a red-letter Christian. It's all inspired by God. Amen? Okay, hope that made sense. All right. Um, In Psalm 32, David joyfully recalls, remembers the cleansing work of God in his own life, and then he uses this experience to call others to repentance. What type of psalm is this? Anybody want to guess? Who said it? Thanksgiving. It's a Thanksgiving psalm. What's a Thanksgiving psalm? Well, it's that which you pray after you've been delivered by God from a particular hardship. You pray this type of psalm once you've gotten out of trouble. This psalm, this type of psalm, typically follows a lament. It's a psalm of gratitude for God's saving action. It looks back and that the psalmist thanks God for what God has already done. 
these types of psalms were sung or prayed when the Lord had answered prayer. And they typically focus on God's character as the reason for thanksgiving. His goodness, His faithfulness, His protection and salvation. Now, this does fall under a couple of uh, subtype categories. Uh, what's called a penitential psalm. A penitential psalm is a psalm that expresses confession. And of course, we see that in the first half. David is confessing sin. Wisdom, right? Do you guys remember the, the, the marks, the, the, the characteristics of a wisdom psalm? There's a contrast between the wise and the, the foolish. So we see that. Verse 10, the righteous and the wicked are compared, contrasted. But then also the language, this kind of mirrors Psalm 1, right? The, the language of just being blessed. And who are the blessed? Those who are forgiven. Those who are forgiven. So it's a Thanksgiving psalm, but it's kind of a hybrid because it falls under those subcategories, penitential, also wisdom. It has wisdom elements. Um, here's the situation. This psalm is attributed to David and is likely birthed from the infamous period of the king's life, we know it. He had an affair with Bathsheba, had her husband Uriah murdered, and then his sin was brought to light by the prophet Nathan at 2 Samuel 11 and 12. And by God's grace, David did what? He confessed, he repented, and he experienced God's forgiveness. Amen? Maybe you're here tonight and you would say, but Chris, you don't know what I've done. You don't know what I've done. Surely God can't forgive me. And I would say, when you say that, you're doubting God's promises. Because God, what does God promise? If we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And I'll, I'll tell you a story later about some of my friends at the Boston Rescue Mission had horrible past. And oftentimes when I would share the gospel, I would say, Chris, but you don't know what I've done. I don't care what you've done. I know what Christ has done. And I know what his word says. And you can bank on that. And we'll, we'll, I'll, I'll give you a couple of stories here in a minute. Um, who's heard of Walmart? Little store, right? Neighborhood store. Uh, now, maybe this one for younger people, Kmart. I remember Kmart. Is there even a... I don't know if, if Kmart might be done. I don't know if there... It's like Blockbuster. I used to love... I think Blockbuster's done. There was one like in Oregon. I think that one closed down, Right? I don't know if Kmart exists. Who's ever heard of iMart? Good, because it's an acronym. <laughs> so in the Thanksgiving psalm, there are typically five elements, and we're going to use the acronym iMart to express those elements. So I think I put this in your notes. Um, I is introduction, and it's the testimony of how the Lord has helped the psalmist. So that's verses 1 and 2. M stands for misery. This is the situation from which the psalmist has been delivered. That's verses 3 and 4. So again, all these elements are found in a thanksgiving psalm. There's an introduction, and then there's the misery, the hardship, right? And then you have an appeal. That's A. And that's a cry for help. That's verse 5. Who's he crying to? The Lord. Who should we cry to for help? The Lord. And then R is the rescue. And we have a description, typically a detailed description of the Lord's deliverance. That's verses 5 to 9. And then lastly, the testimonial. This is I-Mart. Testimonial, 
a word of praise for God's help, God's intervention, God's salvation. That's verses 10 to 11. Here's the structure. Did I put that in your handout as well? The structure? Yeah, there's a lot. Sorry. Um, Verses 1 and 2. This is just helpful. The blessing of forgiveness. That is the goal, by the way. The blessing of forgiveness. Verses 3 and 4. The devastating effects of unconfessed sin. Verse 5, we have the solution. The solution is confession and repentance. Verses 6 and 7, urgency and assurance for the godly. Verses 8 and 9, the Lord's instruction to the repentant. It's really encouraging. The Lord instructs the repentant. Verse 10, the wicked versus the righteous. And then lastly, verse 11 is the response of the forgiven. What should the forgiven do? What is the logical response? We should give thanks. We should praise Him. So let's start with verses 1 and 2. The blessing of forgiveness. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Verse 2. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. All right, so we have here three synonyms for sin and three expressions for forgiveness. Now, why all this repetition? Why say the same thing three times? Slightly different for the point of emphasis, right? If it's it's important, you repeat it. This is called what type of parallelism? Synonymous. All right, well, let's talk about these different words. So, Three synonyms for sin. First, there's transgression. And the Hebrew word for transgression refers to or denotes revolt or rebellion against God. Disloyalty to God. That's pretty serious stuff, right? Sin, who knows what the the word sin means in Hebrew? Even in Greek, harmartia. It's to miss the mark. To miss the mark. To miss God's revealed will. Where is His will revealed in His word? It's to miss that. And then iniquity refers to activity that is crooked or wrong. Okay, so transgression, sin, iniquity. And then we have three expressions for forgiveness that correspond to each synonym for sin. The first one is forgiven. And that word means to carry away, to take away guilt, to remember no more. And then covered, the language of covered, it means to keep something hidden out of sight The sin is kept in the past. The Lord no longer brings it up. Now, the last one's my favorite. Doesn't count. Does not reckon. To not count means to view as justified, innocent. Our account is no longer full of unrighteousness, but righteousness. Again, why mention three? For the point of emphasis. One brother writes in light of verses one and two, and this is just helpful. He says, forgiveness is freely and graciously given regardless of whether it is of a transgression, sin, or iniquity. The the psalmist covers the whole gamut. There's no saying, well, well, God, he can't forgive that, right? That, That was sin. He can't forgive sin. Okay, maybe he can forgive iniquity, but not sin, and definitely not transgression. He uses all three words that typically refer to wrongdoing so as to make the point, God can forgive anything, right? He can forgive anything. Forgiveness is forgiveness is forgiveness. Again, who's ever heard someone say, but you have no idea what I've done. You have no idea what I've done. There's no way God could forgive me. 
Oh, you've, you've rebelled against God? God can forgive that. Oh, you've committed iniquity? Oh, yeah, God can forgive that as well. Again, at the Boston Rescue Mission, I met so many people. Most of the people at the rescue mission had spent significant amounts of time in prison. And they come out, and the state demands, hey, you need to be in a, a place like the rescue mission, kind of like a halfway house, uh, for six months to even a year, right? And, and I, I discipled the men there. I was there for three years, and not living there. I lived there for a summer, and that was, that was wild. Um, I told you guys I got, I got bit by a homeless guy. Not a dog, uh, not even a child, but a homeless man bit me on the head. And I found out he had AIDS. And I was checked out, and I'm okay. But that was, man, that was crazy. So um, that's not the story I want to tell. I'd meet these men, and they were so broken. Because of their addictions, right, because of bad decisions made in the past, they'd lost their entire families, right? At that moment, during that season, the money they made from their work, instead of taking care of their family, they bought drugs, right? And so they lose their family, they lose their job, they go to prison, and they're thinking, Chris, there's no way, you're telling me that Jesus lived, died, and rose again to save me. There's no way he can forgive me. You don't know what I've done. I don't care what you've done. I know what God's word says. I know the power of the gospel. I know what God promises to do for those who trust in him and turn from their sin, and that is to forgive them. Okay, okay, yeah. I mean, what else do you say? I can point to Paul. What did Paul do? Paul was trying to snuff out the name of Christ, right? Paul was killing Christians. Did the Lord forgive Paul? Amen. Amen. I mean, Paul said, I'm the worst of sinners. To view your sins as unforgivable is to doubt the power and promises of God. So what's the point of all this repetition? Point number one, for taking notes, God's forgiving work is both exhaustive and definitive. It's exhaustive and definitive. Now, what do we know of this forgiveness? How does one receive it? Is it a gift? Is it earned? This state of forgiveness isn't earned. It's not because of our merit. It's because of Christ. Paul quotes Psalm 32 in Romans 4, and I want to read verses 5 to 8. Paul says, "...into the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith has righteousness." And here he quotes Psalm 32, verse 6, "...just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works." Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. In Romans 4, Paul makes the argument that salvation is not by works, it's by grace through faith. And he goes all the way back to Abraham. Because Abraham was counted righteous, on the basis of his faith, before he was circumcised. I mean, who were, who were the ones that were circumcised? These were Jews, right? But he was counted righteous before he was circumcised. This means that salvation is for both Jews and Gentiles. Abraham was counted righteous before he was circumcised, and it was on the basis of his faith in God. Amen? Abraham is the prototype for all believers. So it's faith in Jesus that grounds our justification, our right standing before God. Abraham looked ahead to the Messiah, as did David. Both Abraham and David trusted in the Lord. And this element of trust is found in Psalm 32, verse 10. 
It says, but steadfast love surrounds the one who works really hard? No. Who reads the law and does it perfectly? No. Who trusts in the Lord. What about our next section? Verses 3 and 4. We have, the, and this is really helpful, the devastating effects of unconfessed sin. Listen to what David says. For when I kept silent, that's the opposite of confessing, right? It's just kind of festering. You're just kind of letting it stew. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. And then it says, for day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. So David speaks from experience. He reflects on a time of unconfessed and unrepentant sin. And verses 3 and 4 are all about the devastating effects of unconfessed and unrepentant sin. What does it mean to keep silent? Are you ready for this, the Hebrew? It means to keep silent. (laughs) It means to keep inactive. It means to keep still. It means to remain in a state. This is the opposite of confession. Wallowing in sin results in inner turmoil and suffering. It's like a festering sore. Three things here. First, it's emotionally painful. Second, it's continual. David says, my groaning all day long. It doesn't go away. And number three, it's divinely caused. What does he say about the Lord? Your hand was heavy upon me. And this is a good thing. I'm thankful for God's heavy hand. Aren't you? One brother says, God's wrath, his heavy hand, is his no against our sin. No! No! Okay, Lord, okay. Again, this is the Lord's way of getting our attention. So what is the psalmist teaching us here? What is David teaching us here? What is God teaching us here? Number two, unrepentant sin leads to inner misery. So what should we do with it? We should confess it and turn from it. Our first house in Washington, um, so for me and Haley, Haley's more about you know pragmatism. Is this house practical? Is it going to meet our needs? I'm more like, what's outside look like? Does it have a big backyard, right? And so our first house, uh, it didn't have a big, it had a decent-sized front yard, but the backyard was a creek. It was really pretty. And I thought, oh, it's beautiful. And so sometimes I would go down to the creek and see if there were fish. And one time when I was going down the creek, I got mixed up in some bull nettle, like a stinging nettle plant. And when that happens, there's two things you can do. You can get out of there, which is the wise thing, or you can just stand. What do you think I did? Let's see how tough I am today. No, man, I got out of there. I'm stinging. It's burning. I get out. I mean, who's ever gotten stung by a jellyfish? I have a couple of times at Galveston, right? And what do you do? Yes! No, man, you, you get out of the water. You don't like that pain, right? Get out of there. Do something about it. So what is the solution to this inner misery? The solution, verse 5, is confession and repentance. Verse 5, I acknowledge my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord. And what happened? You forgave the iniquity of my sin. So, what's interesting, the three words for sin, already seen in verses 1 and 2, are used once again in verse 5. But rather than giving us three expressions for forgiveness, 
we now have three expressions for confession, okay, that follow the three words for sin. So what did he do, number one, with his sin? He acknowledged it. What does that mean? It means to announce, to make it known. You're not hiding it anymore. You're announcing it, God, I've sinned. I've sinned against you. Secondly, we have the phrase, did not cover. What does that mean? When you're covering something, what are you trying to do? If you have a lot of kids, right, if they find a toy they really like, sometimes they'll kind of turn their back to the other siblings. Like, like when Clark has something he really likes and Luke finds it, Luke will kind of turn his back and start playing with it. He's, he's hiding. He's concealing. David said, I, I didn't do that. I didn't conceal. I didn't hide my sin. And then thirdly, we have the word confess. And what does that mean? To confess. <laughs> Actually, it means to cast upon, to throw, to throw. There's a cause and effect relationship here, much like in 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, cause, effect, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us or purify us from unrighteousness. Here, the cause, confession of sin, the effect, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. And here's the word forgave. It's nasah, like nasah. I try to do it better, but it's gone. No, sir. Mm-mm, it's gone. It helps me with Hebrew, but maybe not you. Nasah means what? It's gone. Where is it? Where'd it go? It's gone. It's been carried away. Who did that? Who cared? It's gone. Nasah. You forgave the iniquity of my sin. Where did it go? Or according to Scripture, it's what? It's, it's gone. It's gone. What was the game changer for David? What's the game changer for us? Point number three, confession of sin results in forgiveness and spiritual healing. This is a great quote from uh, Peter Craigie. He says, confession is like opening the floodgates of a dam. When there is no confession, the waters, this is great imagery, the waters pile up behind the dam, creating immense pressure on the wall. But as soon as the floodgate is opened, the waters subside and the pressures diminish. When you experience this, when you know that because you've trusted in Christ and you've repented of your sin, there's what? There's relief. Ah! And that leads to what? Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. This is the next section, verses 6 and 7. Urgency and assurance for the godly. Verse 6, Therefore, let everyone who is godly Offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. Verse 7 is so good. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Here David, in light of his past experience, entreats all the godly to do what? To urgently seek forgiveness. Don't wait. Don't wait until it's too late. Verses 6 and 7 carry the promise of assurance concerning God's forgiveness and rescue. Verse 6, Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. What does that imagery convey? The rush of great waters. What kind of language is that in the Old Testament? In the New, think about Matthew 7. Jesus talks about at the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount, those of you who hear these words of mine and put them into practice, you're like a man who built his house on the rock, and when the floods came and the wind blew and the rain beat down, right, this storm imagery, 
That stands for God's wrath. But what are we promised to be spared from? Those who repent and trust in the Lord, we will no longer be objects of His what? Of His wrath. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach Him. Isn't that a great promise? Those who repent and trust in the Lord, confess their sin, will be spared what we deserve. And what do we deserve? The wrath of God. In verse 7, we see that the Lord is our place of what? You are a hiding place for me. Oh, man, that's sweet. He is our place of refuge. When we confess our sin and trust in Jesus, we are united to Christ. He becomes our hiding place from the wrath of God. The wrath of God that we deserve, right? There's that word propitiation. In Christ, the wrath of God was satisfied. And so if we're in Christ, what are we spared from? The wrath of God. Have you taken refuge in the Lord today? Is He your hiding place? A beautiful image of this in the Old Testament is the ark, right? God shuts up Noah and his family in the ark, and they are spared, protected from God's wrath, the storm, the rain, the deluge. (laughs) And I love verse 7. Oh, you surround me with shouts of deliverance. This is really good. Those who turn from sin and trust in the Lord are united to a larger family. As Christians, we're brought into the what? The, the church, where the voices of God's forgiven children ring out. They're raised together, thanking God for His mercy and provision. What's the takeaway here? Verse number four, confess now and enjoy the Lord and His benefits. Shouts, shouts of deliverance. I mean, why do we gather on Sundays? We're singing to God, we're shouting to God, we're praising God for His deliverance, for His mercy, for His forgiveness, amen? And when you're brought into God's family, your voice is now brought in, right? I mean, we're singing together. We're hearing together these shouts of deliverance. Isn't that great? That's, again, the vertical and the horizontal. When we're brought into God's family by trusting in Jesus and turning from sin, our voices unite with other voices, and we're singing God's praises. We're surrounded by shouts of deliverance. We did that tonight. Walt, thank you, brother. You're great, man. Hey, you sounded good. A lot better than I sound. So number four, confess now and enjoy the Lord and His benefits. Confess and repent so that you can be spared the wrath of God. It's a great passage to bring an unbeliever to. The blessing of forgiveness is found in Christ trust in Him and be spared from the wrath of God and be brought into God's family where you're surrounded with these shouts of thanksgiving for who God is and what He's done. Amen? In verses 8 and 9, the voice changes from David to who speaks now? The Lord, right? So here we have verses 8 and 9. If you're following the outline I gave you, the Lord's instruction to the repentant. And that's what's so good. God doesn't just save us and say, okay, Gianna, good luck. I've saved you. Peace out. Have fun. That would be terrifying, right? But he saves us, and he what? He instructs us. He teaches us. He guides us. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. It's so personal. With my eye upon you. Verse 9. Hey, listen. Don't be stubborn. Don't be like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must what be curved with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. 
This is remarkable. When we turn from our sin, when we confess, not only do we have the promise of forgiveness, but the promise that the Lord will instruct us, guide us, and counsel us with his eye upon us. He will counsel us, he will instruct us in the way we should go. What way is that? Is that our way? It's his way. It's the way of the righteous. It's the way of the Lord. And then we have the language of my eye upon you. Is that comforting to know that the Lord has, he's not only just instructing us and teaching us, but he has his eye on us. He's not like, you know, okay, I mean, what a bummer when, you know, your kid is asking you to teach him or her, and you're just kind of like, okay, yeah, okay, yeah. Come on, man, like, pay attention, Dad. The Lord is instructing us and guiding us with his eye upon us. He's all in. Derek Kidner, who I love, he's a great commentator, especially on Proverbs. He notes that this refers to God's vigilant, God is vigilant and intimate. His vigilant and intimate care. His eye is upon you. The Lord is involved with his people. He cares, he's concerned, and his watchful eye is ever upon us. And then verse 9 marks our response. Don't be like the horse or the mule that obeys only under compulsion. Horses and mules are stubborn beasts. Don't be like them. Instead, follow the Lord out of joy, out of love. How do we do that? Sin has made this impossible. But the promise of the new covenant, not just forgiveness, but transformation. I'm going to write my law on your heart. I'm going to put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. We can respond to the Lord's instruction due to the heart transformation associated with faith in Jesus Christ. What's the takeaway here? Point number five. The Lord instructs those who confess and repent in the way they should go. The Lord instructs those who confess and repent in the way they should go. I'm always careful to reference a movie when I teach. Um, I don't think that's a good practice to do that commonly, but this movie is just so good, and uh, I think it's harmless. Jeremiah Johnson, Robert Redford, classic. He's a mountain man. He aspires to be a mountain man, but he's a novice, right? He has no experience, and quickly he finds himself in trouble. But an experienced mountain man rescues him, and not only does he save him from peril, from danger, from death, he then takes him under his wing, and he instructs him in the way of the mountain man. That is like, Chris, I long for that, bro. I long for a mountain man. I'm just kidding. But seriously, a mountain man is like, hey, I'm going to teach you how to be a mountain man. Whoa! So not only does the mountain man save Robert Redford's character, Jeremiah Johnson, but he does what? He instructs him. He teaches him. He guides him. The Lord doesn't just save us. That will be enough. But he promises to teach us with his eye upon us, to be with us and to guide us and lead us in the way we should go. He promises to not leave us alone. Isn't that wonderful? What a good God we serve. Amen? Not only am I going to save you, but I'm going to instruct you in the way you should go with my eye upon you, my loving eye, my caring eye, my watchful eye. All right, what of the final two sections? Verse 10, we have the wicked versus the 
righteous, and here's that wisdom element I was telling you about earlier, right? And so again, this is kind of a hybrid psalm, primarily thanksgiving, penitential, confession element, but also that wisdom element because there's this juxtaposition between the righteous and the wicked. Verse 10, many are the sorrows of the wicked. What is your trajectory if you refuse to repent and go after the Lord? Sorrow upon sorrow upon sorrow, okay? Many are the sorrows of the wicked. Does that sound like a nice holiday? I long for more sorrow. No. But that is the end for those who reject repentance and reject the Lord. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but, and this is a good one, it's a good but. I love the buts of Scripture. Here's the contrast, right? But steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Piece of candy to the person that can tell me what type of parallelism this is. Next week I'll bring it for you. We've talked about synonymous. We saw that with the different uses of the word for sin, right? Iniquity, different words for confession. What When you have a, not this, but this, what type of parallelism? It's called what? No candy for you guys. Antithetic. Antithetic, right? Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who what? Trusts in the Lord. The one who repents and confesses sin is surrounded with shouts of deliverance. Verse 7, whose shouts are those? The redeemed, the rescued, right? Our, our voices come together and we are together as a people praising God for his rescue. Amen? That's why we gather. But not only are God's people surrounded by these shouts of deliverance, what else do we have in verse 10? We're surrounded by steadfast love. Who's steadfast love? Who's chesed? The hard Hebrew word to say. It's that guttural chesed. What does that refer to? God's kindness, his love, his mercy. Those who trust in the Lord and turn from sin will be surrounded by God's kindness, his love, his faithfulness, his mercy. The key operative word here is trusts. Trusts. The one who trusts. And trust or faith always has an object. Trust in who? The, the Lord. The one who trusts in the Lord. All right, final section, verse 11, the response of the forgiven. How should the forgiven respond to God's gift of forgiveness? Joy and what type of psalm is this? Thanksgiving, joyful Thanksgiving. Let's bring those two together. Ah, Thanks, God. No, thank you, God. I was lost, now I'm found. I was blind, but now I, I see. This is brilliant here, okay? God's Word is so good. Note the change in mood from verses 3 and 4 to verse 11, from keeping silent, verse 3, to shouting for joy, verse 11. Isn't that amazing? What enables that? What enables one to go from keeping silent to shouting for joy? Confession of sin. And what enables that? It's a question of who. Who enables that? God, by His grace. Amen? Confession of sin by the Spirit results in true joy. 
Confession of sin results in worship. What should the forgiven do? Praise, give thanks, worship Him. The righteous and the upright in heart are those in whose spirit there is no deceit. That's verse 2. Again, this is the Lord's doing. So what's the takeaway here? Final point, number six. Those who are right before God, those who are forgiven, worship. We worship. That is the appropriate response. That's Romans 12, 1 and 2. I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice to God, for this is your logikos worship, your logical worship, your reasonable worship. What should we do in light of God's forgiveness, His mercy applied to us? We should worship. We should worship. Repent now and experience the Lord's healing love. Again, in order to experience the blessed state of verses 1 and 2, one must confess, repent, and trust in the Lord. Have you done this? And if you have, give thanks. If you have, worship the Lord. And if you have, share this good news with others. Amen? How dare we? How dare we be recipients of God's grace in Jesus Christ, know this good news, experience it, and then not share it? That is a travesty. That is evil. It's wrong. What should we do? We should shout it from the rooftops. Amen? I was just meeting with a brother before I canceled. I was a couple minutes late, so I'm sorry. But again, I was so encouraged because this brother said, man, we're going through a book right now by Kevin DeYoung, The Hole in Our Holiness. But he asked a question in chapter 1. Are you a Great Commission Christian? He said, man, I'm not, but I want to be. I want to be sharing the gospel more. This brother that I met with knows the good news. He's trusted in Jesus. He's experienced God's forgiveness. And he knows that as one who has experienced God's forgiveness in Christ, his job is to now do what? Share it with others. Make it known to others. Last question, then we're going to pray. Oh, we got time. We're good. How does Psalm 32 point to Christ in the gospel? Well, this is easy, right, with Psalm 32. <laughs> Number one, this is in your notes. Those who trust in Jesus have the promise and blessing of forgiveness. Amen? Those who trust in Jesus have the promise, the blessing of forgiveness. Number two, those who trust in Jesus will be taught by God. Go back and read John 6, 45. That's part of the new covenant promise as well. If we trust in Jesus, those who trust in Jesus have the Spirit, and the Spirit teaches us God's Word. Amen? Helps us discern God's Word. Helps us do God's Word. Number three, those who trust in Jesus are transformed to obey God. That's verses 8 and 9. And lastly, those who trust in Jesus are true worshipers. One more time. Number one, those who trust in Jesus have the promise and blessing of forgiveness. That's verses 1 and 2 and verse 10. Number two, those who trust in Jesus will be taught by God. That's verse 8. Number three, those who trust in Jesus are transformed to obey God. Verses 8 and 9. And then lastly, verse 11. Those who trust in Jesus are true worshipers. Let me read verse, 40, uh, sorry, verse 23 of John 4. John's Gospel, chapter 4, verse 23. But the hour is coming and now is here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and and in truth, Jesus is saying, I have come to make true worshipers out of you. But the pathway to becoming a true worshiper is me. It's Jesus, right? Who wants to be a true worshiper? 
then trust in Jesus. Let's pray. Um, how might we prayerfully apply Psalm 32? I gave you some practice steps at the end that you can read through. Uh, and the last one, you can actually fill in the blanks there, right? Give thanks to God for his saving work in Jesus Christ. We should do that prayerfully every day, amen? I mean, do you every day thank the Lord for the gospel? Thank the Lord for the forgiveness provided in Christ? So give thanks to God for forgiveness and assurance of salvation. Give thanks to God for his instruction, his teaching, his counsel, which is found where? In his word. How often do you thank God for the gift of his word? Give thanks to God for his ever-watchful eye. Isn't that wonderful that the Lord is watching us? Maybe that, fear, maybe that scares you. He's watching me. Ooh. What was that song? And, and Michael Jackson sang the line, I always feel like somebody's watching me. That was kind of a creepy song, but when you know it's the Lord, and when you know the Lord described in the Bible that he's watching you, and that comforts me, that encourages me. It, it tells me that God loves me. He's with me. He's got his eye on me. Should we be thankful for that, church? Of course we should. And then lastly, I thought you could just fill in the blanks. Give thanks to God for, give thanks to God for. Again, this is a thanksgiving psalm. It teaches you how to pray a prayer of thanksgiving, which we should be doing every day. A lot of Christians that I talk to struggle with prayer. I think most of us at Kelties are probably doing better at Bible reading. Uh, a set-apart, sustained time of daily prayer. I, I don't know. I don't know how we're doing there. Um, a good acronym is ACTS, A-C-T-S. Start with adoration, which is praise. Uh, C, confession. T, thanksgiving. S, supplication. Those are your requests. Lord, give me wisdom. Give me boldness to share the gospel. Help me to be a better dad, better husband. And kind of work through that acronym as you pray. The Lord teaches us to pray that way, right? Adoration, confession, thanksgiving supplication. But what was the third one? The T? Prayers of thanksgiving. Let's do that together. How might we prayerfully apply Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2. You can pray it with me. Father, we thank you that in Christ our sins are forgiven. You no longer count our sins against us since Christ died in our place, satisfying your wrath against our sin. We praise you for this supreme blessing. Verses 3 to 5. Father, may we always be quick to confess our sins. Help us to confess our sins both to you and to other believers for the sake of accountability and prayer. We pray for anyone who is currently living in unrepentant sin in your church today. May your heavy hand move them to repentance. We thank you that you are merciful, gracious, and faithful to forgive. Your word says that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to purify us from all unrighteousness. Verses 6 and 7, in Christ we find shelter from the wrath of God. What grace. May your church resound with shouts of praise for your saving work on our behalf, King Jesus. Verses 8 and 9, teach us the way we should go. Incline our hearts by your Spirit to follow and obey the words of King Jesus. May we not follow you begrudgingly, but out of joy, love, and gratitude. And then finally, verses 10 and 11, Father, we thank you for your faithfulness to save. You promised a Savior. Jesus came, and His coming is evidence of your great faithfulness. You make us glad. You give us joy. You make us upright. Jesus, we are righteous only because you are righteous. We rejoice in your saving grace. And all God's people said, in the mighty name of Jesus, amen. Amen.